There's no greater testimony to Christian discipleship than love and unity in a church. There just isn't. Jesus declared to his disciples that the way people would know that they're his disciples is by their love for one another. And love finds expression in unity. That's just how it works. In fact, Jesus makes this point in the Gospel of John after he declares that people will know his disciples by their love for one another, by praying to the Father that his people would be one even as he and the Father are one. Well, we just talked about the Trinity for a little bit in our Bible class this morning. And for us to be one as Jesus and the Father are one is incomprehensible. That, that is amazing that that's possible. And I don't think that Jesus was praying a prayer that will never come to fruition or that was only intended to be seen in the age to come. I, I think that's a prayer that's intended to be fulfilled already and then further in the future. We might think, though, that the New Testament authors don't care about unity and love. That's just a Jesus thing, we might say. Paul cared a lot about justification by faith. Unity and love wasn't something he cared about. That's not the case. And as we turn to the book of Ephesians and begin our study through this book, I want to suggest that one of Paul's main aims is to cultivate unity in the church. That those who have come to Christ and found union with him would find others to be their people because they're Christ's people. They're members of the same body with Christ as the head. And Paul wants churches to be unified. Now, this sermon is an introductory sermon to a series. And I just have to say, introductory sermons are the hardest things to do ever. Because essentially what happens in an introductory sermon is we're just putting some pieces in place that we're going to stand on for the rest of the series. We're putting foundational ideas in place that will become more cohesive over the next several months. And so I just need to give the disclaimer that today might feel a little bit more like a Bible class lesson than a, a sermon. It'll be more teachy than preachy. Some of you might like that, others of you might, might not. But I think what, what will happen today will set us up well for our study through Ephesians. So I want to just... Um, make a couple of comments first about reading the Bible and preaching the Bible. And then I want to give us a bit of an overview of how um, unity in Christ is a main theme in Ephesians. And then I want to conclude uh, with some reflections on how we should respond to this, particularly distinguishing between uniformity and unity. So that, that's kind of where we're going today. And the middle section will be primarily drawn from Ephesians, but all of it is intended to help us read Ephesians better. Now, on reading and preaching the Bible, here at Resurrection Church, we believe that the Word of God gives life. So when we want to see a church come to life, we need to come to the Scriptures. If you want to see your life be full and vibrant in Christ, you need to turn to the Scriptures. So it's for this reason that we sing songs that preach scriptural truths. It's for this reason that we incorporate scripture into our prayer and scripture readings into our gatherings. And it's for this reason that we spend a lot of time in a service with a guy standing up here talking about the Bible. Well, it's because the Bible is the only thing that gives us life. And, and the Spirit works that in our hearts. And, and we need to be like Peter who says, where else shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And, and that life is now mediated in the scriptures. Now, what this leads us to do then is what we call expositional preaching, where we, we slowly work through a book most of the time, looking at small units of text, trying to understand the theology that's there and how we ought to respond. Now, on occasion, we'll do more topical sermons. So we, we might have a you know, sermon on the Lord's Supper or on you know, baptism or something like that. But very often, we just spend time working through a text of Scripture. Now, this is 
helpful, but it can also be harmful at times. And that's because as we look at really small units of text, three or five or 10 verses, we can start to think about those units of text in isolation from the larger letter or book that it's in, but then even that we can start to think about is separate from God's larger redemptive word to us from Genesis to Revelation. And that's why we need some of these overview sermons to keep the big picture in mind so that as we hit the small units of text along the way, we read them in light of the whole. And and then we need to have a stronger view of the whole in light of the smaller units. So we read them in light of each other. I hope this makes sense. But when, when we just focus on a verse or a few verses, we can start to read them out of context. And it's really easy to make those verses mean whatever we'd like them to mean. And so we need to keep the, the bigger picture in mind as we go. Now, to keep the bigger picture in mind, for Ephesians, I'm trying to emphasize the theme of unity in the book of Ephesians. I want to be clear that there are other themes in Ephesians. I just think unity is the most pervasive one, and this gives us a big framework that we can read the rest of the book in light of. So in this overview sermon, I'm going to make a lot of generalizations. And one of my professors tells us, generalizations are almost always helpful, and they're almost always wrong. And I think you get the point. Generalizations, general ideas are helpful, but they're not particular. And so if all we take, if we say the generalization is all that there is, that's wrong, it, but, but it's also helpful. And so I want to spend time talking about the theme of unity because I think it's helpful, but don't walk away thinking there's n- nothing else that Ephesians talks about. So for the next several months, we'll just hear sermons on unity every, every Sunday. Well, they all will support this larger theme of unity, but there are other more nuanced ideas along the way that we need to pick up. All right, we've talked about reading and preaching the Bible. We need to read with the big picture in mind, but we also have to dive into the smaller bits of it to get the theological depth that's there. So let's move then to Paul's conception of Christian unity in the book of Ephesians. So um, as we get into this, I, I need to make two comments that I failed to make. Number one, Ephesians is broken up into two parts. You have Ephesians 1 through 3 and Ephesians 4 through 6. And Ephesians 1 through 3 is essentially just rich theology. So some people talk about it as the indicative section of the book, and the second half is the imperative section of the book, and all the commands come in the imperative section, right? So as we're studying Ephesians, it's going to be really hard for us to remember when we're in this theology half of the book that we actually need to respond to that theology. And then when we get to the second half, the command section, it's going to be really hard to remember that there's a reason for these commands. And so there are two errors we could make. One error is that we only think about the theology and start to divorce theology from all of life. But really, theology is the stuff of life. Life is made up of theology, and and we live out that theology. So in the first many weeks as we work through chapters one through three, I'm going to try to help us know how to respond to it. But don't, don't be confused to think that there's no application of doctrine to life. But then when we get to the second half, I'm going to try to remind us that these commands that we have are not to earn favor before God or to create a legalistic spirit in our church or something like that. Those imperatives, those commands are on the foundation of the theology of God's grace that is in Christ and of the sealing of the spirit that guarantees the covenant promises for us. So that, that's another piece in this reading large and small that we need to keep in mind. But then we also need to keep in mind that Ephesians is a letter that was written almost 2,000 years ago. That's a long time ago, and it was also circulated in what's now like Turkey, essentially. So it's to a people group that have questions about life that are way different than our own questions. What makes this even more complicated is that this is a general letter. We, so when we went through 1 Corinthians, there were quotes from the Corinthians that Paul would respond to. And so we could kind of detect what bad ideas are Paul, is Paul trying to fix? 
Well, in Ephesians, it's just really general, and so we don't know if there were even problems that Paul was trying to fix. And so we, we have to work a lot harder then to frame the letter in its own full context, but then recognize that, that it's written a couple thousand years ago to people with way different questions than us. So we have to do some level of historical background research to figure out how people hearing this letter for the first time would have heard it. One of the ways that we do this is by hearing how Christians in other parts of the world receive this letter. Uh, we'll, we'll get into how we read a text of scripture and it just seems to make sense to us and someone reads it and it makes sense to them and it's opposite. Well, one way that helps us know when we might be having a reading of a text that's more individualized than, than what Paul intended is by reading people in other parts of the world who are responding and reflecting on these texts as well. And so throughout our series, there are going to be points in time where I talk about historical background. That's not to say that we can't understand the Bible without it, but it is to say that there's a protection against reading the Bible as if it's all about me, and, and this historical background will help us. In particular, Ephesians is written to a place that's being controlled by the Roman Empire. And so we have to understand the way that the Roman Empire influenced the way people thought and would have read this letter. So there are terms that were applied to the, the, the emperor, like Lord and Savior, and he would bring peace and all these sorts of things, things that Paul is saying Jesus does. And so as we start to recognize this Roman background, I think we're going to start to see that Jesus is our king. That's what Paul's trying to get at, and we're to find unity under the kingship of Jesus Christ. So we're, that background information will help shape some of these things. But I also want to caution against saying that the only background is the Roman background. There's a whole Hebrew Bible that serves as the foundation for the theology Paul is giving. So our work is even harder. I think we have to delve into the Old Testament and ancient history and then recognize our modern conceptions about life and try to understand this book in light of all of those things. So we have quite the task in front of us. But let's try to get the big picture as we look at Paul's conception of unity in Christ. Now, when I talk about unity in Christ, I think our minds might jump immediately to a relational level. That is to say, when we start talking about being unified, we might start thinking about the arguments that break out over family dinner or the person who sat across from you in the row and they were chewing gum really loudly and it was annoying and now you don't like them, but we should be unified in Christ. Well, that's true. And we're going to get to this individual relational level eventually, but actually the unity in Christ starts at a cosmic level. So in the redemptive plan of God, there is a working to unite all things in Christ, things on heaven and things on earth. And if we start thinking about Christian unity in terms of yourself and someone else in this church, you're going to start with such a small, narrow piece of it that you're going to miss out on the larger redemptive work that God is doing because we make it just about us. So in Ephesians 1.10, to illustrate this, Paul is arguing that God has made known the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth. So that is to say that God has orchestrated a cosmic redemptive plan that brings everything together in Christ, in Christ who is the king. Now, in the coming weeks, we'll talk a little bit about what it means to talk about cosmic redemption, but at least for right now, I want us to be able to say that there's a unity in Christ that transcends me, that in fact reaches to all of creation, into all things in heaven and on earth. And so whatever issues I have in attaining Christian unity is really actually small compared to the larger cosmic unity that is being brought about in Jesus Christ. And I think it helps us put our issues in perspective if we can say that there is a unity being developed that reaches to the very fabric of the universe in of heaven, whatever that might mean, all in all is being brought together under King 
Jesus. However, that redemptive plan does take shape specifically with humans, with humanity. And there's this principle that we find as we read the whole Bible that as go humans, so goes the world. And so when humans fall into sin, we read this in Hosea a while back, where humans were murdering each other and lying and stealing, and now the ground isn't producing food. Well, we, we can't make all those connections scientifically, maybe, but God makes them for us that as humanity goes, so goes the, the world. And if Christ is going to bring the world into harmony with God once again, he does so beginning with humankind. So the problem that we face then is not fundamentally that we're divided from each other, but that we're divided from God, that we don't have union with God because we are sinners and broken. So as we look at this redemptive plan of God, think there's a big problem, and that problem is that there's a divide between the creator and his creation. So there needs to be cosmic redemption, but the ones who created the divide between creator and creation are humans. So it's no surprise that the redemptive work begins with humanity. And that's what Paul is bringing forward in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. He emphasizes several realities that are part of the redemptive plan. And I'm just going to highlight them briefly and and try to tie into this because what each of us needs to do if we are going to participate in unity under King Jesus is to make this redemptive story our story. So, So your story can't be the hardships that you've experienced in life or, or anything else, your story needs to find its center in God's story for the world. What's interesting to me about our modern day is that it's popular to choose your own story. Uh, that's not always been the case. But as identity and personal story come together, we live in a moment in time where you get to choose your own identity and that's never separated from your story. And so I I think that for those of us who might struggle with unity with God, it's because we're writing our own story. We're, We're living with our own identity. And what I would encourage you to do is as we go through Ephesians, to tie your story into God's story. And and that begins with the very beginning where God makes you in his image such that you are defined by him. And whenever we live our lives trying to find our identity in ourselves, we're going to create disunity with God. We're going to separate ourselves from God and we're putting ourselves in, in the wrong trajectory. So I don't know if you guys watch movies or read books that are kind of fiction or whatever, but you've probably all watched a movie or read a book where there's this character who's sort of an undecided character. And you've, you've got your good guys and your bad guys, and, and you've got this individual who could go either way. And usually that individual starts by trying to write their own story and they start going down the bad way. You know, so think um, Edmund, Chronicles of Narnia, or yeah, that's right, in Chronicles of Narnia, where his, some of his siblings are tying into the story of Narnia. Well, you get this other guy who's trying to write his own story and he's pursuing after Turkish delight and hot cocoa and a place of power. He wants to write his own story. He wants to be his own man. Well, I think there's a bit of him in all of us where we want to write our own stories. What Paul is telling us here is that God has started a redemptive story before any of us existed, before the world was created. God started writing the story and he's giving us the opportunity to identify with the conqueror, Jesus Christ. So in 1.5, he tells us that he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. So he predestined you to be part of his glory and his story and his grace. And if we keep trying to write our own stories, we're going to end up in a disunified place wherever we go. We can't be at harmony with God. Now, later on, as I talk about interpreting the Bible and how there can be Christian unity, even when we disagree on these things, already there are terms in this text that are interpreted differently by different Christians. 
concepts of predestination and election prove quite troubling to some, and, and there are different ways of understanding those terms. Well, as we get into this text, I'm going to try to, in the coming weeks, give a fair representation of different ways of hearing these terms. And I'm certainly going to try to explain why I lean in a particular direction and, and why I think that makes more sense. But even as we think about the redemptive plan of God, we in our sin can twist that plan into an occasion to divide in churches instead of unite under King Jesus. And I'll, I'll talk later about why I think we can debate about these things. But, but we need to do so in a way that looks to Jesus as our king and that finds our unity in him because first and foremost, we have been reconciled to God, the one with whom we have the greatest disharmony because of our sin. So we're predestined by God for adoption as sons. And then second, we are set aside for redemption in Christ through his blood. So look in verse seven, in him, that's the beloved one, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. We have redemption, that is release from sin. Where sin had a grasp on us before, now we have freedom from sin. In the sin that divided us from God, and that ultimately is at the source of all of our divisions from one another, we are, we're freed from that. We can have genuine unity with one another because we have redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, as we get to that in the coming weeks, I'm going to try to push us to have a larger redemptive historical idea of what redemption is. And the way we find that is by looking all the way back to the Old Testament where Israel is delivered from Egypt. They're redeemed. Now, sometimes we talk about redemption simply in terms as if we've been bought back. And so the classic illustration is, you know, Johnny has this wooden boat that he's playing with in the water. A storm comes, it blows it down the river. He can't find it. And then down the road, he's walking by the toy shop and he sees it in there and he buys it back. And we talk about redemption in that way. Well, that's, that's not precisely the way that the Bible talks about redemption. Because we don't quite see um, language of being bought from Satan or something like that. There are ideas there. But when we talk about redemption, we're talking more particularly about being released from the captivity of sin. And, and that sin is what stands at the heart of all of our problems. So this idea of being freed from it and using the imagery not of a, a boy buying back a boat, but of Israel being freed from the slavery of Egypt, I think is going to help us as we start to try to work through what it means to be unified in Christ as Christians. Using that imagery will also help us navigate the challenges we face as we start to mumble and grumble and complain and fight with one another, just as we saw Israel do it. We, we see redemption there and division quickly follows. And that should be a warning to us that even as we have redemption from sin, we're prone and we're inclined to divide from one, from one another and to reject the kingship of the Christ who redeemed us. But then beyond our redemption, in verse 11, Paul tells us that in Christ, we've also received an inheritance. We've received an inheritance which means that we're part of the one family of God who receives all of the promises of the new covenant in him. Again, these are ideas that we'll flesh out more deeply, but the fact that we have been adopted as sons, we've been set free from sin, leads to the conclusion that now we have received the inheritance as the younger brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ that we will share for all of eternity as Christ's people. If we doubt that we've received this inheritance, there's a word of promise and comfort, and that comes in verse 13. In Christ, you are also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. And I think what Paul's been trying to do is he's talking about this unity that we have in Christ that's founded in the redemptive plan of God is to say that already you can participate in this. 
So just as you have the Holy Spirit, which is the down payment of all the blessings of Christ that you will receive in the future, so too can you participate in the life of Christ's people now, though only partially as a sign of what will come in the future. And if in the future we will fully participate as a unified people of God, then right now we can pursue Christian unity together. My point in articulating this whole section is that our unity is something that could only come about because of God's redemptive plan for us. On our own, I think it's fair to say, at least if you're like me, we're happily Esau and Jacob. We are happy to disagree and divide and to push who we are over against one another. But more seriously, on our own, we'd be happy to be forever divided from God. Apart from God's predestining, calling, electing grace, none of us would ever want to be on right terms with God. Instead, we would stand just as Adam and Eve taking actions to replace God and to sit on God's throne as the Lord of our own lives. So whatever we think about unity, we need to root it in the redemptive plan of God. And we need to recognize that within each of us is a heart that doesn't want God and doesn't want each other. And, And the only way that that is changed is because of the grace of Jesus Christ. So the Christian unity that we have is formed in the redemptive plan of God, but the Christian unity that we have is expressed ultimately in the church, in the body of Jesus Christ. So so while the cosmic redemptive plan is cosmic, it includes a human element and that human unity is found in the church, in the church universal and in the church local. Now, I also need to say here that even as we get into texts about how God brings together humanity into one new humanity, there are disagreements about how to understand this. There are different conceptions about things like the relationship between Israel and the church, both now and in the future. There are different ideas about how churches ought to unite and divide, and we need to think about these things, but we need to root it in the reality that there is a new humanity formed, which is the church, and Christ is the head of that whole humanity. So it is wrong for individuals to say, yes, I'm part of the body of Christ, Christ is my head, and anyone who's different than me is not part of Christ's body. That's just not the way it works. And we know this because Paul lays it out for us very clearly in Ephesians chapter 2. When Paul talks about the new humanity that is here in Christ, this body which has as its head Jesus Christ, at this stage he is not talking about different local churches and he's not talking about different denominations, but he's talking about Jews and Gentiles those who were identified as the elect people of God throughout the Old Testament, and Gentiles, those who are talked about as the, the nations, the outsiders. So if the very foundation of our idea about Christian unity needs to start with cosmic redemption in Christ, the next step that we need to take is the unity that's now possible between Jew and Gentile. We can't skip any of these steps because if we start talking about other things like denominational unity or individual unity and it's disconnected from these things, that unity will not last. It needs deep roots that goes all the way down even when there are hard things to understand about the way that Jews and Gentiles were previously divided. There are challenging things in these texts. And even as you scan chapter two, you will notice that there are distinctions in pronoun usage that alternate between you and us. And and what's being read in there, you are the Gentiles and us are the Jews. And I'll try to substantiate that as we go through this text. But one of the reasons this text is confusing is that we don't catch on to this pronoun shift where Paul starts saying that Jews were able to participate in the covenant of promise at one point and Gentiles were not. But now through this redemptive plan, Gentiles are welcomed into the covenants of promise. So if you read 
a text like Ephesians uh, 2, 12. Let's start there. At that time, you Gentiles were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he who is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility, in his flesh he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. Well, this is world-altering. This is magnificent, and this is really hard for us to understand. One of the reasons it's hard for us to understand it, I think, is because as, well, for those of us who grew up in the church, I think we start talking about ourselves as if we have been part of the covenant of promise all along, and that it's just those pagans or those people who look different than us who are now finally being welcomed in when the reality is that we are the Gentiles who were without hope and without God in this world and we're now welcomed in. This should make us, on the one hand, feel like we're outsiders. If you have never thought about yourself as an outsider to Jesus' people, you're not getting it. You're, You're not getting the beauty and the newness of the unity that can be found in Christ. So if you're like me and you grew up in the church and you've never really thought of yourself as an outsider, think of yourself as an outsider for a moment and then revel in the glory that it is that you're now unified in Christ and you're brought into the people of God that you otherwise would have been separated from. If we can do that, And if we can start to envision two humans, Israel and Gentiles, who are now being put together as one new humanity, we're going to be able to hear everything else that Paul says later on in the right terms. So later on, Paul talks about taking off the old man and putting on the new. Well, that's not an individualized thing saying, take off the Aaron before he knew Jesus and and put on the new. It includes that, but it's more fundamentally a call to unity. So Jews, take off your old humanity where you thought you were the people of God and put on the new humanity. Gentiles who only lived as those who are separated from God, take off that humanity and put on your new humanity that you have in Christ. And to seal the picture in our mind, he goes on to talk about us as the body of Christ. If we can start to think about Christian unity in these terms, where, it's, where it places us as those who are once outside, when we find ourselves inside as part of that new humanity, when we find disagreements and divisions with others, they pale in comparison with the kind of division that we owned before coming to Jesus. And, and that throughout human history was owned before Christ came and died and rose again. Now, I think that there might be someone who would argue, well, then isn't division ultimately God's fault if he set up Jews as his people and not Gentiles? Didn't God just stir the pot and make everything awful? Well, we have to read further back in the Bible, and I think we find our answer. We find that from the very beginning, when all of humanity was equally welcomed to God's presence, there were those who entered and those who rejected it. You have your Cains and your Abels, and from that point on, you have people who are happy to be divided from each other and from God. So when God called Abraham and created a new humanity then, labeled as God's firstborn son, that was not a move to create more division, but it was a move to create more unity. And and out of that one elect firstborn son of God came the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who now expands it back to all of humanity. And and so we have this creation, sin, and and then Israel and Christ that brings new creation. So every time someone comes to Christ and every time we find unity in him, we are participating in new creation life and we are prophetically displaying what is to come. Finally, Christian unity is maintained through ethical living and discipleship. 
Have you ever thought about that? Our Christian unity is maintained through ethical living and discipleship. In Ephesians 4.1, Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father for all, who is above all and through all and in all. Well, what follows this declaration and this exhortation to maintain unity? It's going to be a call to live the new life, to take on the new humanity, to live in love and forgiveness and peace. And I think what's interesting is we start to look at all of these commands The sins that are warned against are those that particularly create division in the church. Lying, dishonesty. The the virtues that are particularly commanded to take on are those that promote healing and unity. Forgiving one another, loving one another, worshiping with one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. So as we get to these ethical imperatives in the second half of the book, I think we can have, because of the sinfulness of our hearts, a tendency to look at these as legalistic commands. Instead, we need to view them not as legalistic commands, but a way of living and a way of being in this world that supports and maintains the unity that's already been given to us in Jesus Christ. So it's not a unity we create, but it's a unity we maintain. Also of note, in these commands that promote unity in the church, there is a glorious vagueness to them. There is something vague about so many of these commands that doesn't tell us particularly how we ought to forgive one another or what kind of songs to sing in our worship or any other thing. And and that should hit us very shockingly. And what I think it demonstrates to us is that even in our unity, we're not pursuing uniformity. That is to say, Christian virtue gets refracted through our lives such that it takes on different shapes and forms, and the church will look very different from one another as they cling to the same Christ and and pursue the same virtues. This is of no surprise throughout. Hopefully you've picked up on that from, from the beginning all the way through, that in this new humanity, there's written into its DNA a diversity that militates against uniformity where everyone looks exactly alike and thinks exactly the same things and comes from the same backgrounds. That's not the case. And even as we look forward to the end time where Christ comes and the earth is made new, there is language about people from every tribe and tongue and language and people group such that I think diversity will always be a necessary part of unity. And in fact, even as we consider our God, the one God, there's a plurality there. So I want to talk now about a distinction between unity and uniformity that I think is biblical. I don't think that we're just making this up as a way to say, let's just get along with everybody, live and let live. That's not what's going on here. Making a distinction between unity and uniformity is genuinely part of the makeup of Christian unity. There's no way around it. Because if we start cutting ourselves off from diversity, we cut ourselves off from the king who is bringing all together on heaven and on earth. So in Ephesians, I think we obviously see the diversity of Jew and Gentile. And as we study the New Testament scriptures, we come to understand that there was never the desire to say, you must be exactly the same in every way. This is done in a couple of different ways. One is through things like the Jerusalem Council, where there are questions about how Jews and Gentiles ought to live. This shows up in places like Romans 14, where there are questions about conscience, and Paul has a category for people who have different conclusions about things, living together in unity, concern for one another, but not doing the same thing in every aspect of their lives. This is the same as we hit texts like 1 Corinthians 8 through 11, as there are discussions about eating food offered to idols. There are different conclusions that will be made. And... 
as we trace church history, there are different interpretations of text and Christians who remain side by side under King Jesus, waiting for the day where we might find that both of our interpretations are wrong. There has always within the Christian church been a diversity that transcends uniformity and that reaches and climaxes in true unity. I think that we need to continue to work on this and think about it as we are located in the South Metro and find ourselves in a racially or ethnically diverse place. If the church that Paul is writing to in Ephesians is comprised of people from all sorts of cultures, and it was, that, that's the way the society was, then we should be forming the life of our church in a way that would be welcoming and inviting and integrating of people who look far different from us and who come from cultural backgrounds that are far different than ours. And as much as we might want to affirm that, there always comes the moment where it happens and we start to get uncomfortable with something. We need to be okay with being uncomfortable. That, that is something that none of us are inclined towards. No matter how much our Twitter feeds might say we're a world traveler and we love other cultures, the reality is we like us. And, and we need to work hard to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And I pray that God would grow our church in a way that on virtually every Sunday, there's something that I'm just a little bit uncomfortable with because it's just not my thing. And I hope that's the case for you. But my larger prayer is that as we are uncomfortable, we find our unity under King Jesus, who makes us all one in him and gives us the spirit who is our comforter. When we think of unity and uniformity, then we might look to the universal church and say, there's a problem. And on the one hand, I think there is. But some might say that we have a problem because we have denominations. Well, just very briefly, I think denominations are a good thing that allow for more close unity. Okay, there, there are some issues that just have such a prevailing influence on a church that it's really hard to maintain practice when there are disagreements about how that works. And so one of the common ones that we can point to is a distinction between credo-baptists and paedo-baptists. Well, it just works better for daily church life to have different denominations. And that's a gift. I think where we start to sin in disunity is when we start to look at denominations as the ultimate good. And we start to say, my denomination is king. Or when we start to look at other denominations and say they have nothing good and we can't borrow anything from them because, because they do this one thing we don't like. Well, if we're going to say we are the one humanity, the body of Christ, then we need one another. Even as we talked about in our class on the Trinity this morning, there have been times when Baptists have stopped thinking about the Trinity and thinking about the Trinity well, and we've been able to turn to Anglicans and Lutherans and others who've preserved careful language about the Trinity. We need that. And guess what? I think they need us too, even though we're Baptists and we often do our own thing. So denominations are actually really helpful. They become bad when we worship them. But I think you and I need to recognize that they are a luxury. They're a luxury that's the result of peace in the Christian church where we're not being persecuted and we're not being martyred because we believe in Christ. And I think it's only responsible for us to try to imagine a day when we would worship in the same assembly with those who have different denominational distinctives. Much of the New Testament, and particularly the book of Revelation, is intended to prepare Christians for times of increased suffering and persecution. And I think we need to do that here. I, I am not a gloom and doom guy. I, I don't care to prophesy about when, when we'll start being persecuted. I don't really care about that. But I think we need to think about our life and is the way that we think about ourselves in our church going to be robust enough to endure waves of persecution that may come? 
Are, are we looking at other Christian denominations as, and churches as truly part of Christ's body such that when churches can't meet publicly anymore and the only Christians we can gather with are those who live on our block, that you'll be able to every Sunday gather with those who have never identified as a Baptist? If, if you're not there, you, you need to imagine that day. Because what that imagination is, is just a really small bit of a, a larger, grander imagination where we, for the rest of eternity, will be connected to Christians who have never identified as Baptists on the new earth as we worship Christ together. I am not being wishy-washy here. I, I know that if you are hardcore Baptists, you might hear this and think, what did we get ourselves into? I, I'm a Baptist for a reason, but I want us to grow spiritual muscles and Christian unity that doesn't flourish just as a rich, spoiled church. That's what we can be. It's like the kid whose you know, dad always punches the, the kid for him. And, and then that kid's on his own, and now he's got to stand up for himself. Well, if he's never you know, stood up for himself, he's going to get pummeled. We need to be a church that won't get pummeled when we can't meet, when Christ's name can't be professed publicly without threat of death or persecution. So we've been taking these steps of Christian unity. I now want to get to local church unity, okay? Because what Paul has to say about unity has cosmic and redemptive historical and universal church levels, but it also has to do with local church unity. Now, I think that while many of us are ready to affirm that unity or that uniformity is not necessary for unity, we often betray that belief as soon as someone fails to find uniformity with our view on a particular issue. We often trumpet that we are fine with people being different than us. We're happy to disagree and be together until someone actually disagrees with us. And now we demand uniformity. I think that's wrong. Of course, there's the sticky matter of determining what issues are necessary for unity and, and where there can be disagreement and difference. I can't lay that out today, but if you are struggling with that, how do I know what we should divide over and what should we be united over? There's a little helpful book called Finding the Right Hills to Die On by a guy named Gavin Ortland. And, and I think that we need to work through determining what can we be very different about, and what must we agree on? And I think the reality is that this, what we must agree on circle is smaller than we think it is. And if you're inclined to think that we must all look the same or believe the same thing about every text of scripture, I just want to lovingly push you. Think about what Christ is doing to bring all things together in him and, and think about what happens if you're wrong. What, what happens if we are regularly arguing and dividing with others over something that we're actually wrong about? Now, we might think that that could never happen because we always know when we're right. And um, that's true in a way. We always think we know when we're right. Um, but we need to grow in the ability to ask questions of each other, to discuss and debate and disagree, and to be able to articulate the viewpoint of the person we're disagreeing with in a way that they would say, yeah, you said that better than I did. Because if we can't even articulate what we think we're disagreeing with in the way that that person would affirm, then, then our disagreements, I would suggest, are not actually about that doctrine or that issue, but because of relational sin that's probably in our hearts. That being said, there are times to disagree and argue and debate. And um, I, it, we have this church podcast that we do. Josh preached a text a few weeks ago, and I really disagree with his interpretation of that text. And Josh and I thought it would be good for us just to talk about it in a way that people could listen in on that, not because we're perfect in the way that we know how to disagree and debate and these sorts of things in a way that's charitable and understanding, but because we want to regularly demonstrate that even pastors can disagree about interpreting texts of scripture or different theological views and, and have deep Christian unity. I, I am thankful for Josh, and we, we agree on so much. And when we disagree, it is 
like tooth and claw, like working through this thing. But I think it's the kind that, that Jesus would be happy about. And, and I think we need to grow to develop that. And so what I would, what I'm, the point I'm trying to make here is that we can get to a spot and churches can get to a spot where they say they're unified simply because they've never pointed out the things they disagree with. And, and if we can not point those things out, I would question whether true unity is actually there. Do we have a unity that transcends these things? And we need to cultivate that here. Now, unfortunately for some of you, that's going to happen more often than not because I can get pretty opinionated on some things sometimes, more so than I need to be. And, and you just need to point that out to me because I, know, I want to grow in knowing how to charitably disagree with other people. And I think that's a calling for the rest of our lives. And, and I think in that, we need to, instead of always talking about what we disagree about or never talking about what we disagree about, genuinely working through those things as we pledge allegiance to our King Jesus. As we close, I just want to read a word from John Newton on controversies and disagreement that I think is a beautiful frame of mind for each of us to have as we depart from here today. John Newton wrote to a guy having a controversy with another guy, the Lord loves him and bears with him. That is the guy you disagree with. The Lord loves him and bears with him. Therefore, you must not despise him or treat him harshly. The Lord bears with you likewise and expects you to show tenderness to others from a sense of the much forgiveness you need yourself. In a little while, you will meet in heaven. He will then be dearer to you than the nearest friend you have on the earth right now. Anticipate that period in your thoughts. And though you may find it necessary to oppose his errors, view him personally as a kindred soul with whom you are happy in Christ forever. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to look at one another as those who will be happy in Christ forever. We confess that our sin clouds that vision. We don't see it. Sometimes we don't see it just because of our own immaturity or because we haven't seen it modeled or because we've never experienced it. But I pray that you would grow this church to be unified under King Jesus and that we would not overlook disagreements and that we would not lean too hard into them, but instead that we would follow after you and be able to work through distinctions and disagreements we have along the way. Help us whenever we come across one of these disagreements to appeal to your spirit to give us wisdom and insight. Help us to remember that these disagreements are nothing compared to the disagreement that we have had with you from the moment we were born and that humanity has had with you from the moment that Adam and Eve sinned. And that help us to believe that if the gospel was strong enough to heal that divide, that it's strong enough to heal whatever divide and tension we might feel between each other. Help us as we study Ephesians to grow as the body of Christ, to build one another up and to lean into your plan for us and to tie our stories into yours. We know that this can be done only by your grace, through your spirit. So it's in Christ that we ask this. Amen.